Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge explosion of fire for John Forrest. The car exploded going through the lights and this is as bad a fire. On this episode is the Vegas winning top field crew chief David Rubnick and standout racer and multi-time champ Justin Lamb. It's going to be Tim Wilkerson. Wilkerson goes 391-2. We're talking top field drag racing as well as stock and super stock. Perfect reaction time for Dallas Glenn. Triple zeros across the top of the time slip. And at the finish line stripe, it's Dallas Glenn. This is the NHRA Insider. It's Cruz Pentagon, 395.8, 324 miles an hour. A margin of victory of 26 ten thousandths of a second. Hey everybody, Brian Loans here with the NHRA Insider Podcast. Back for another great show, a post-race show, a post great Vegas race show and shows a day or so late coming out because frankly everything you do the week after you leave Las Vegas is like a day or two behind you leave Las Vegas a lap down no matter how much you try to uh, not leave Vegas a lap down it just happens and uh, for some of our teams especially those that won on Sunday night uh, those men and women maybe two laps down by the time they got out of town but what a uh, what a great event Uh, what a great four wide nationals we had out there and you know, the, really top to bottom. We look at what Erica did. Erica Enders comes out Sunday morning and says, makes a social media post uh, with her, you know, a Wally and, and her hand on it saying, this will happen this afternoon. I am going to win the race. Uh, she said it more eloquently than that, but indeed she said that. And not only did she do it, she did it in, in really fine fashion. It was a dramatic way for her to win. Uh, Christian Quadra leaves with a 005 light, and he's out there, and he's out there, and he's out there. And then all of a sudden, the car, the engine broke. It was it was literally the engine giving up the ghost. If it had lived another 75 feet, he probably would have won the race. But she was able to drive around him at the top end. We look at the Nitro Funny Car category, and we look at the action that uh, took place over the course of, of the whole weekend. We look at how fast everybody was. We look at how these things were, were kind of playing out, and then Ron Caps goes and wins in the final round. His first win as a team owner, his first win for Ron Caps Motorsports. Uh, he had a special guest in the pits with him. I'll talk to you about that. And then we talk about Top Fuel, and it was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, Top Fuel was everything we hoped it was going to be, as it has been at every race. The final quadrant, the final quartet of cars had 16 total championships and nobody in that quad had made a final round in the year 2022 yet. So we continue the streak in Top Fuel now with four winners and four races. Uh, We have not had um, anybody make two finals so far this year. Every finalist has been uh, fresh to the season and who knows how that's going to keep up or if it will keep up when we get to Houston, but um, it's just fun to consider how wide open Top Fuel is and and we have to start going back a few years. Uh, 2019, I believe we went five for five to start the season. Um, We're going to follow up on that, but then you go back and you have to start, start, start diving back to 2014 or 2015. Uh, So it is a fairly irregular occurrence for us to have this much spread, this much diversity in the people winning these races to start the year. And I am certainly not complaining about that. I find it to be uh, one of the most interesting stories in the entire sport because of the fact that you just cannot predict who is going to win week in and week out. We saw Clay Milliken uh, debuting with Jim Oberhofer over the course of this weekend. It was uh, the the first time that Jim had crew chiefed on the car. Uh, remember, he was with that team in 2019 as kind of a consultant as Mike Clover got back up to speed. But uh, they went back to Jim Oberhofer, made a change in the tuning. And, you know, the car didn't miss a beat. Uh, it ran well. They're fifth in the points right now. They are consistent. And uh, they had a clean weekend in Vegas. They didn't win the race, of course. But the car was making laps, uh, was being consistent, was not breaking things. 
So uh, off to a pretty, I would say, a successful start for Jim O and his tenure with that Parts Plus Summit Racing Equipment Top Fuel team. I think, you know, one of the things I really want to touch on is uh, in the pro stock category and and as much as we have seen great racing everywhere, you know, pro stock's really something else. And, and Erica, of course, now with her second win on the season, uh, is doing what she said she was going to do in so many ways. She did what she said she was going to do Sunday when she made the post and then went and won the race. Uh, she has done to this point in the year what she, said, what she said she was going to do for this entire season, which is to drive aggressively, which is to not give an inch, which is to treat every single round of competition as though it is the championship hinging round. And what we have seen come of that is a woman that is at the top of her game and certainly somebody that, um, at least as far as last Sunday goes, can predict victory. And we're going to her home track in Houston, which for what is being touted as the very final national event uh, and the very final NHRA Spring Nationals that will be held at that facility. And it's not like she needs motivation to win. She clearly could win if we race these things on a you know Wednesday in December for no particular reason. She'd be as, as cranked up to do it there. But the amount of intensity that will come with her uh, to her during race day at Houston will probably be beyond anything anyone else can conjure. This is a place that has incredible memories. And, and we'll have her on the show, of course, before we go down to Houston to get her uh, more intimate thoughts on that. Christian Quadra just driving like a madman. I mean, Christian Quadra has been and continues to be, um, I'm not going to say a sleeper in pro stock. He's a, he's a guy that has been doing this, exactly this, for a few seasons now. We remember what happened with uh, Jason Line in Las Vegas. He Christian Quadra, remember, locked the championship for Eric Enders by by just strapping a a humongous hole shot on Jason Line to, to lock down that championship for Eric a few seasons back. So, uh, he's a known quantity, and the game changes for Christian with horsepower. And by all means, it does seem as though he has that competitive power now. And I would, um, I, I, it's tough to, it's tough to pin this on anybody. But when I look around the pro stock pits, I see Mason Begay, who's gone late rounds uh, pretty much every race, and he has been driving incredibly. I see Christian Quadra going late rounds every race is driving incredibly. Obviously, Kyle Koretsky's off to a good start. We've already seen Dallas Glenn win. We've seen Erica win twice. We've seen Aaron Stanfield in multiple finals. And to me, all those names have something in common, and that is pretty youthful, either really youthful when we're talking about the Mason McGahays of the world, uh, or you know, moderately youthful, however you want to say it. Um, we're not talking about people who have 50 years of experience that have been winning these races. And you know, Greg Anderson is going to get there. Uh, he's he's admittedly uh, a step behind, a half a step behind some of the other people in the class, and uh, they're going to work hard to get that done, get that gap performance gap, if you will, closed up. So um, all of it, in my opinion, is looking great. Pro Stock Motorcycle, we get them back in Houston. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks as well as to what we should expect with Matt Smith coming out on his Suzuki, uh, with Karen Stouffer after having the single greatest performance day in the history of the category, what she's bringing to the table and who's going to be kind of threatening on those fronts as well. One interesting thing I want to talk about before we get into our interviews with David Grubnick and with Justin Lamb this week is an experience that began for me on Saturday and culminated for me uh, making the show on Wednesday uh, after the four wide nationals. And that experience began actually began a couple weeks before the race. I have been a listener of Howard Stern for, uh, I guess at this point, more than half my life. I began listening to him when I was in high school. He used to be on a, a station called WBCN in Boston. And 
they had a dedicated morning guy who was the local, like, you know, high-rated guy. So Howard's show would be aired in the evenings. And so as a kid, I would, you know, put my radio on at night, lay in bed and listen to Howard Stern, probably because my parents didn't want me listening to him. And I realized he's not everybody's cup of tea, and he's a controversial figure, and he's, he's somebody that a lot of people, you know, love to hate, and some people hate to love him, and that's that's everybody's everybody's choice. Anyway... Uh, one of the guys that's been on his show forever is a guy called Ronnie the Limo Driver. It's a man named Ronnie Mund, who is, was Howard's limo driver for many, many years uh, in New York. Ronnie relocated to Vegas, and prior to the race, I sent him a note, and I, I was able to get some contact for him, and I sent him a note, and I said, hey, um, we'd love to have you out. And he's a huge racing fan, big NASCAR guy. To my knowledge, he had never been to an NHRA drag race. Well, lo and behold, Ron Caps had pulled a whole shot on me because Caps had already gotten his attention, and Ron uh, had him out to the race and was going to give him the hospitality experience and everything else. And so I just asked Ron, I said, dude, could you please just have him come over to the TV compound at some point? I'd love to meet him, and I know a lot of our crew is uh, you know, fans of the show, and they listen and everything else. So lo and behold, uh, on Saturday, Ronnie's at the race, and he comes over, and, and he meets us, and I give him the tour of the TV compound, and it's pretty fun. It's neat to meet the guy in person, and just a, you know, kind of a wild personality, one of Howard Stern's you know, longstanding, uh, let's call him cast members on the show. Anyway, we then interview him for the television show, and we had to do two interviews. The first one, we, the first one didn't come off the way the TV truck wanted, so they, they broke it off, and we did a second one. And that was the end of that, and I thought it was just kind of cool he was integrated into the show. Well, this morning I was driving in my car listening to Howard, and Ronnie was brought on, and he starts telling the story of the race, and then he gets into the fact that he did these two interviews. And so, lo and behold, I, I just I, I had to kind of stop what I was doing, and I listened, and, and they played the interview, and they were making fun of him about a certain number of things and, and how he said certain things. It's just what they do. They pick each other to pieces on the show. So I decided to call. I picked up the phone, called the show, uh, got on the phone with the call screener, told the guy who I was, and then he told me to hang up, and I was going to get a phone call from somebody in a minute, and that somebody was Gary Del Bate, of course, better known as Baba Bowie, uh, who's kind of like the lead producer on the show. Anyway, I had to verify my identity with Gary, tell him a bunch of stuff, and and just make sure I was who I was saying I was going to be. And then 30 seconds later, there I am uh, on the phone with Howard, and, and we're talking about NHRA drag racing, and we're talking about uh, the, the four wide nationals. We're talking about Ronnie's interview. We're talking about why the TV truck shut it off. And, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, being a drag race announcer and, and my career and stuff like that. It was a incredibly surreal experience. If you were a listener of the show and you had the ability to go back and listen, um, it's pretty cool because they spent 20, 25 minutes talking about the four wide nationals, a lot of it busting Ronnie's chops. But over the course of that time, you know, Ronnie got a lot of information out about the race, talked a lot about Ron Caps. Uh, it was just a very interesting it was a very, very interesting place to hear people talking about NHRA drag racing. And so it cracks me up. If you are a stern listener and you heard it, great. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And my, it was uh, surreal to be on the phone. And I, I was quite nervous. It's, uh, it's not every day that happens. So anyway, that's the long story short, kind of a, a funny day in the life story as we uh, get ready to move into our interviews here. But I figured you might enjoy that one. And again, if you have access to the uh, to the app or however you can get to the show, uh, if you listen to Wednesday's episode, this would have been Wednesday, the 6th of April. Uh, you can find you can find the story on there and you can find, bizarrely enough, uh, a pretty long segment talking about NHRA Camping World Drag Racing at the Four Wide Nationals. It was good stuff. And frankly, uh Probably a once-in-a-lifetime deal. All right, so our first guest in this episode of the NHRA Insider coming off a great win at the Four Wide Nationals in Vegas, the winning crew chief, who, of course, is on the Monster Energy Flavor Pack Top Fuel Dragster, David Grubnick. How you doing, man? 
I'm very good, Bond. Thanks for having me on. So this was, uh, I think, probably a pleasurable departure from the conditions we saw in Gainesville, right? You guys at least had some clue as to what you were going to be looking at when we got to Vegas. Yes. You know, um, the conditions there, obviously, you know, we got historical data so we can sort of set ourselves up with something that we're familiar with, um, familiar track, all that sort of stuff. So, yes, that that was good. But, um, you know, getting back to Gainesville, yeah, that one that one was off the charts for us. So, but we got through it and um, we got the show done and, and it's been time to move on. Yeah, I mean, to me, I want to talk to you a little bit about the surface in Vegas because it continues to be very impressive for me. It's about they got about four years of of runtime on it now since they added the two lanes and, and resurfaced the whole track. To me, it seems top three, top five on the on the series tour. No, and we would agree with that exactly. So, um, you know, the, all these tracks have their different personalities, and you know, we look at track temperature, but you know, and then we have uh, ET targets for that temperature. And some of the tracks are below our normal ET target, and some are above that target. And Vegas is definitely one of those tracks. Yeah, and it was an impressive weekend all around. And and when we when we look over the course of Top Fuel over that weekend, it's very rare. Obviously, it's rare to have four qualifying sessions, but to me, it's so very rare to see four different low qualifiers per session. We normally don't see that kind of thing passed around like a hot potato. No, exactly, and um, and that was very impressive for uh, Mike Salinas and everybody. We thought we got everything out of it on that seventy three, and uh, admittedly, we went up there. We were we were off in Q four. Um, but we did try to push it a little bit harder. But but credit to that team for that track temperature. That was uh, that was an excellent run. It was, and and to me that that kind of microcosm of qualifying really speaks to what Top Fuel is this year. I mean, we've now gone four races. We've seen four different winners. And when we look up and down these qualifying sheets, the the the, the one thing I'm seeing is a great number of cars, which is great. But the names are unreal. I mean, that final round. A total of 16 championships sitting simultaneously next to each other was just phenomenal. Right, yeah, I wasn't, and to be honest with you, we have tunnel vision when we're oh, there, sure. right? We're 100% focused. You know, we, you know, we'll look and see who we're racing, and 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 fortunately for us, you know, we had first pick at what lane we wanted to go in, so we didn't sort of really have to focus on. Well, who are we racing? What lane are they going to pick? Um, what lane were they in previously? All that sort of stuff. But, you know, after it was all said and done, um, you know, uh, it was brought up to me that, you know, hey, do you realize the number of championships that were in that final round? And then it's sort of like, you know, and then it hit you. It's sort of like, wow, that was a stacked field. <laughs> yeah, it was phenomenal. And it's, uh, you know, to me, it's what the people kind of pay to see when they come to a four wide race. And it was it was just great to see four cars make a strong pull. It was a tight run to finish the thing. So it was, you know, it was really everything, everything that the class has, has been billed to be this year. It's kind of came down to that, uh, that brilliant moment in the final. And I mean, just a booming speed, 338 miles an hour was a jaw dropper. Yeah, that's not, that's, we, you know, sometimes that comes with a risk. Obviously you've got to push the engine and, and, and it was, we looked at the track conditions and temperatures and, you know, when you push the car early, it's a lower risk on the engine, but it's a higher risk of smoking the tires. If you push the car later, right, it's less risk on smoking the tires, but a higher risk on the engine. So, you know, looking at what was at stake, it's sort of like, you know, we decided to sort of, you know, cut it loose, so to speak, and just uh, pulled the coals to it. And luckily it worked out and the engine came back fine. So it, it's, it's difficult to, you know, you can't absolutely predict 
how things are going to turn out with these things. You're at the mercy of the, the nitro god, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not like these things are stable. I've already said this. <laughs> you know, there's they have a mind of their own. So, you know, luckily for us, that all worked out as it should have. Yeah, and, you know, from your perspective, and, and you mentioned Tunnel Vision, which I completely understand and, and absolutely um, get and in terms of the, you know, race weekend, because you really, you know, as much as people say it as a cliche, it's true. If you don't concentrate on what you're doing, uh, you might as well pack it up and go. If you're worried about what other people are doing, your race car is not going to go any faster anyway. But in terms of the in terms of the overall year approach, when we look at a more overarching approach, when you saw what this field is going to look like in 2022, when you seen when you were seeing how it shapes up now through these first four races, is there any philosophical adjustments you make going forward, like kind of understanding who the key players might be, or understanding that that this is probably going to be something that goes down really to the last, probably the last run of the year? Well, yeah, I would say you know we always it's you you plan for it going down to the last run, you plan for it being um, you know a tough year, so. You know, it's we 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 put everybody up on a pedestal, right? Yeah. So any, anybody can knock you down. So we we've kind of we've kind of stayed the status quo for a while there. Um, we felt that you know we had the performance, we had to fine tune it, get our consistency. So and and you can see that you know in in our performance last year. Um, so we we worked on consistency, but we actually stayed. And, and tested Monday in Vegas to to try and get ourselves look at potentially getting ourselves up to another level. So not much. It's it's don't get me wrong. This yeah. isn't we're talking hundredth of a second. Right. But you know we stayed and tested. And credit to my guys too. It's sort of like you know we we had a little bit of a rough start to the year. I just want to pay kudos to them. They've they, they've worked hard and they've done a fabulous job. And so, you know, with that being said, that, that we're always looking, Brian, this, we, we don't stand still. We did stand still for a little bit and worked on consistency, but we are now looking at, at trying to move ourselves up a little bit because, as you said, the field's going to be pretty stacked this year and we're anticipating it being, you know, it, it's going to be a battle down to the wire with not with multiple teams. Yeah, and, and one of the points you just mentioned that I wanted to kind of dive into a little bit is, you know, you mentioned the team then the team dynamic itself. And I think, you know, whenever I have conversations with the guys that that work with you or, or with Brittany, one of the things that always comes up is is communication. And, and they always talk about how that you're a, you're a very strong communicator and, and you really, as much as you can, involve so many people on that team in, in what's going on or at least keep them abreast of what's going on. So, one – I want to know kind of who influenced you most in, in the way you lead your team over the course of your career. And two, why is that communication element so important to you? Well, on the, on the first question, you know, nothing, um, I don't really have any, nothing really comes to mind. It's sort of like, you know, and I would say it was probably a collective sum of a group of people. Right. And then what you do is you take the best attributes and you look at the worst attributes. Yep. Right, and it's something. Well, I don't really want to do that. And you look at good attributes. Well, I want to adopt that. And it also probably stems back to my career coming up through the sport and how I felt that I would have liked to have been treated. And so, and, and you pull all this together, and and hopefully you come up with you know some sort of model or philosophy that works with everybody. And so far to date, it it's worked. And and the most important piece of our puzzle is our people. It, it's not the parts. It, it's not the superchargers. It's not any of that stuff. It's the group of people that you surround yourself with. And we work very, very hard 
at, at making sure that we have that synergy amongst all of them. And and that's why we communicate. It's sort of like, you know, I've been on teams where you can turn up at the races and you can feel tension, you know, where there's something <laughs> going on, right? right. And, and we, you know, that's the first thing I do when I get to the races is, is I'll feel the guys and see if there's any tension. And if there is, I'll, I, I get them all together. I poke them. You know, I'll keep prodding at them until it comes out and then it gets discussed and it gets hashed out and it gets solved because, you know, that, that can be a cancer. And if you leave it run, it'll, it, it can hurt the, it can hurt a team. So, um, that's the reason why, you know, we communicate and, and we do it a lot. And, and, you know, the guys we have, they're all professionals. They've all been doing it a long time and, and they deserve the right to know why we fail, you know, and, and why, and when we succeed, why we succeeded. Yeah, and that's and it's obviously some of those conversations are humbling to have in, in either direction, right? But like you said, I, I think it's it's again this this kind of mystical thing that's so tough for us to illustrate on a TV show or, or and until we talk to you guys that that actually lead these teams to understand the depth that it does take. You know, we so often think that oh, the crew guys, you know, they hop in the truck and they drive to the next race and then they bolt the crankshaft back in and then we go. And it's like, man, it's so much more than that. It is all encompassing, as you just mentioned, on basically every level of your life. Well, it is, and it's sort of think about what we do, and and we're dealing in hundreds, sometimes thousands of a second, right? So we we have tune-up models. We go, we look at, we'll analyze the racetrack. We'll come up with what we feel the racetrack will hold for an ET. And it's down to hundreds of a second, right? And so for us to do that, you have to have certain power levels. You have to have certain clutch settings. There's, you know, the tires have to have a certain amount of grip. All this has to fit into a puzzle. And the guys just rebuilt the engine. And you look at all the moving parts in the engine. And I always pay them credit to this. Think of a clutch disc. Think of a clutch disc if it's not cut perfectly flat or when they do all the service maintenance, all this sort of stuff, it can, you know, and when you're dealing in hundreds of a second, you know, all this is credit to the work they do and the precision that they have. That's how we can pull this off. You know, we, it's, we can go out there as crew chiefs and look at all our numbers and come up and twist our dials, right? But if it ain't put together right, it's not going to repeat. And that's not just our team. Look at all the teams that have that consistency. You know, um, the Capco boys and, and, you know, these other teams that are doing very well. Um, or that's because of all the people and how they run their operations. Yeah, and, and, you know, we featured, uh, we had a, a feature on the show with uh, Rob Passy and Johnny West, and, you know, it has, to me, been a such a fascinating and really amazing thing that the influence that Johnny has had on so many of these small teams, and it is, to your point, and, and you guys operate at a different level, there's no shame in saying that, you do, but for him to come in and kind of show these guys that, you know, good enough isn't isn't good enough. The reason this is happening is because that clearance should be 50 thousandths and it's 80 thousandths. And, you know, and that to me and the fact that you have to do it and the level that you guys do it on, you have to do it in this compressed time frame as well. It is it's 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 a mastery. Right. And and you've been able to keep a team together that has begun to to to, to achieve some level of that. We've watched the Capco team do it for years and you've been able to have this consistency of personnel, which is, in my opinion, at least at this point of the year and at this point of of the you know NHRA kind of scene, the most important thing, period. Yep, we're, indeed, exactly. So don't get me wrong, but I have my moments, right? Oh, Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Yep, and I've got to go back and I've got to apologize to my guys, right? And I always tell myself, you know, take the 15-minute rule, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, the pressure, the frustration, um, you know, when things don't go the way they should, it's sort of like, it, it takes a toll, but, 
you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to admit to it. You've got to take a couple of steps back. And I have apologized to my guys, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's something, it's part and parcel. It's a cost of doing business. It is. You know, I was pulling some clips for the uh, NHRA Nitro Time Machine segments we do. And lo and behold, I was looking at some old Houston stuff. Lo and behold, there you were in the Geronimo Top Fuel Dragster. Um, and I forget the year. I'm thinking it was early 90s sometime. There was a clutch malfunction with a car, unfortunately, and you had to drive it down the racetrack. But, um, you know, when I mentioned something like that Geronimo Top Fuel car, where does that take you in terms of your, your Oh, your my mind? God. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. I was driving the Geronimo um, the Geronimo top fuel car, there was, it was for Bill Blomgren. Um, he, he since passed, um, great guy, definitely helped me through my career. He also, um, he had the Geronimo funny car, yes, which, um, uh, uh Richard Hartman drove it at the time. And then, um, but anyways, yeah, we had that Geronimo drag show and what that was, it was sort of like, that's when my brain would really get in the way. And then I ended up thinking, why do we run a cross shaft? Why do we have all this linkages? Why don't we just have a hydraulic unit? And I ended up making a longer cannon and I had a hydraulic, I actually had a, a, a master cylinder for a clutch pedal. So I really, I just pushed it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, there was, it was all done through hydraulics. And then, and to, to be honest, I, Larry, Larry Meyer had that on Shelly Anderson's car and he was, and that's where I first saw it. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's exactly how we should be. So I had this on there and it was just cobbled together. I, I ended up buying like this brass cylinder or master cylinder that actually it, it was had the right areas and so forth to make it work. And it worked, but somehow I pushed the clutch pedal in and I thought I couldn't quite shift it. And I thought it was ex- it was experimental, and I thought the last thing you want to do is back this thing up and have another car behind you. And I was like, you know what? I think I'll just drive it off the racetrack. So, but I do remember that, you know. Yeah, though that's cool. That's cool insight because because uh, you know in typical TV world, like there was no real explanation as to what happened. It was just that well, there was a problem, and he drove off the track and on to the next one. But that's really fascinating that uh, that you went the hydraulic route there, and ultimately, ultimately, why did not why did that not become a thing? Why are we back to linkages? Um, it, it's probably more in the setting of the bearing because to set to set your the bearing correctly, you had to rely on hydraulics yeah. rather than sort of a physical stop. And and you know, in my mind, it's sort of like, well, you know, hydraulics are hydraulic; it won't compress; it'll always go back to the same spot. But then there's other variables, and and who knows? Maybe down the road we might consider it another day. But um, you know, it, it was it was one of those instances. Yeah, your brain gets in the way, and it's sort of like you know, you do something and it works. But you know, the rest of the industry sort of works with what they got, so stick with that. Yeah, no, it's neat. That's a that's a really cool piece of insight there. And obviously, I bring up Houston because that's going to be our next stop on the tour. It is the place that you and Brittany got your first win as a as a tandem driver crew chief combination. That was a, a great day for John Force Racing because Robert also won that afternoon. Um, give me a little bit of a give me a little bit of a book, if you will, on Houston. We know sea level; it's it's typically a fast track. But when you go to Houston, what are the things that stick out to you that you need to be mindful of? Well, um, humidity. We've had. Um you know, we've had some very, very dry conditions, um, unusually dry conditions at these first four events. Um, normally, typically going to Houston, we can see that change to an extreme. Um, so, you know, we'll go from, again, being sort of like very light with, with vapor pressure or moisture in the air to potentially being high. I, I haven't looked, it's too far out right now to sort of look at any advance, but whether, but it, that's something we're going to pay attention to. And again, as you said, we're back to sea level. 
Um, the racetrack um, historically has been good. You know, we go there. Obviously, we go there each year. So, you know, we've got good historical data on it. So, um, last event. So yeah, it's, it's going to be, be a madhouse down there. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. Exactly. So, you know, we want to, we want to continue with the momentum that we've got. Um, you know, we'll keep attacking and you know, we'll do the best job we possibly can. Well, man, congratulations again on the win in Vegas. It was impressive on, on all accounts and, and it had to have felt good on Brittany's side as well. I think, you know, we obviously can't grade wins. A win is a win is a win. It doesn't matter how you get it. You get it. But when I look at a victory like you guys had, I see this kind of holistic thing. I see I see the driver come together and be aggressive and attack the starting line every run. I see a team that's obviously doing the service and maintenance correctly. I see correct calls being made by the by the if executive tuning staff, if you will. And to me, these are the little microcosm wins that separate a championship team from just say a top five team. So that was a that was an impressive one. Yes, and then you know what? Just just on that too, to Brittany, Brittany did a fabulous job for us, right? And, you know, I saw a top end interview and that was amazing. You could see, I see when she would lose on a whole shot, right? I see her straight after that, right? And I can see the pain in her eyes, right? And she, I can tell you that she carries that. And she even said that you could see it in that interview. She did fabulous for us and, and she really carries that and she does well for us. And, and I hope everybody sort of understands that, but, we're very proud of her. She did great. Yeah, I mean, it, honestly, in, in her interview, the the electricity, the energy, and it it looked as though somebody took a, a three ton granite block off her shoulders. So that was uh, good things going forward, man. Congratulations again, and I will uh, see you in Houston, and hopefully, we don't need our raincoats. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, man. So our second guest in this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast will be none other than twenty nine time national event winner, five time world champion, and Vegas winner Justin Lamb. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. And, you know, I wanted to catch up with you because, to me, the the idea of, of a guy like you that has been so successful and so successful at his home racetrack is just a fun topic to talk about. I mean, you're a Henderson, Nevada guy that has just racked up, what is it, now nine national event wins in, in Vegas? I believe it is nine, yep. And uh, it's, it's pretty crazy because early on in my career, I had very little success in Vegas, right? Um <laughs> I mean, it took me, I don't know the numbers at all, but I know it took me some time to actually win a national event in Vegas where like I had way more success than somewhere like Sonoma or, you know, some other tracks and I just could never get it done in Vegas. And it's almost like, it's like one of those things, like once I got the first one, then I, then like the others followed. Does that make sense? No, it, it happens all the time in this sport. We see it all the time, you know, whether it's sports and racers or pros, either there's something they can't do or there's some place they can't win at. And it's like, it's like a dam breaks open all of a sudden. And now you can't, you can't go wrong there. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how it is. I, I obviously, uh, historically have raced pretty good in Vegas. It's a challenging track, lots of weather, lots of wind, things like that. Um, this weekend, you know, was not one of my better performances, obviously, but, uh, you know, looking at numbers. But so this weekend was a deal where, you know, stuff kind of fell my way. My car was running really good, whatever, but I didn't drive as good. But historically, I've always driven very good in Vegas. I, I don't know if there's a different comfort level or whatever, but uh, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, and to me, the, the one of the things that, that is fascinating to me about sportsman racers that, that compete at your level, which are very few, um, and I'm not saying that patronize you, it's just facts, uh, is the fact that there are race weekends where you can be a little bit off, but 
you can still pull out a win. And to me, that is how that is what makes champions, right? To me, a champion is not somebody that just cakewalks their way to do it. It's when the going gets tough, you find a way to win, even if it isn't the prettiest way. Yeah, and yes, and that's very true. But I got to tell you, it's very frustrating at times because there's times when I like this year, for instance, I drove way better. At, at least as far as like reaction times are concerned, I drove way better at both Pomona and Phoenix. I show up to Vegas, drive mediocre, and I win. And in Pomona and Phoenix, I I mean, I won like a couple rounds total between two cars, right? Like, it just doesn't make it, – it's it's very frustrating at times because, you know, you, it's, you get so mad when like, wow, I'm driving so good and I just can't win. And then other times, you know, it just you just win anyway, you know. And it's just it, – the, the back and forth is very difficult at times, for sure. Well, it is, and you mentioned you mentioned racing multiple cars, and, and that's something I want to get into as well because you know every one of these things and, and every style of, of of drag racing, whether it's heads up or it's a handicap or it's a index style racing, really does require a, a slightly different skill set. And you've been, you know, signature wise in your career, you've been so good at doing this in multiple categories and really in multiple cars at the same event. And I, I guess where does that skill set come from? And and is it one of those things that you wouldn't do it any? other way now do you always prefer to have multiple cars at the same race yeah i definitely do um i I always prefer to have multiple cars i obviously if you know we're going to travel and invest the time the effort the money all of the above having two opportunities to win is a big plus for me right um for for my efforts for for our efforts like you know the cost of being there and everything else but um as far as like where i learned it so so that being said i wouldn't do it any other way like i want to run two cars at every single event um, across the board. But as far as where it started, like, honestly, um, you know, when, when my father and I started racing, I had two cars from very, very early on. Um, you know, I started out with a super comp car and, um, shortly thereafter ended up with a super stock car. And so for most of my career, I've run, you know, two classes of some sort, whether it was comp and super stock or stock and super stock, you know, whatever the, whatever the classes were, I've always ran multiple. And I think starting at such a young age, you know, um, kind of taught me how to do that. It, and it's not always the easiest thing. Cause you know, you lose. I was going to say that, like, there's, a, there's so much, there is so much hustle involved in that. Yeah. There is. And, and the classes are different, right? Like, uh, so like this past week I'm racing stock and super stock and one, you're foot braking, one, you're leaving off a trans break. Second round, I turn into 001 red. I have to come back and win a round in super stock. And I'm still mad about stock. Like you have to like, you know, uh, you really have to separate the cars, the classes, the, the wins and losses, you know, you can't cause, cause you don't want it to negatively affect you either. The point of having two cars is having two chances to win. Yeah. If you lose in one and you're upset or frustrated or mad, and now that caused you to lose in the second one, you might as well have just come with one car. Right. So it's <laughs> right. very important to be able to separate them. Yeah, and and you obviously race outside of the NHRA. You you compete uh you compete at many high level uh you know giant money bracket races. I believe you're going to be competing at the uh, the fling out there in Vegas as well. And I want to talk about the main kind of differences, whether it's mentality or pace or all of the above, between a national event, which for sportsman racers notoriously can be herky jerky, right? All of a sudden it's like, well, you're going to make a hit, and then maybe you're going to sit around all day, and maybe we need you back now twenty minutes later, versus. You know my experience with the with the bracket races, especially the the races that like Peter Biondo and, and Kyle put on, and, and the high level competition. I mean, that is an unending stream of traffic going down that racetrack. It just doesn't stop. It is, and there it is very, very, very different um, in all aspects, right? Like when you're racing a national event, you know you're racing. Uh, you know you, you make a time run on 
like this weekend. We made a time run Friday morning. We made a time run Friday night. First round Saturday morning. I, I don't remember when second round was. Everything is so spread out, right? And you're having to race day to day. Big weather changes day to day. It's hard to ever get in a rhythm, specifically like on the starting line for reaction times, because it's just so spread out, right? Where the bracket racing, I feel like it's much easier to get in a rhythm, much easier to have more consistent reaction times, much easier to dial your car because you're running. I mean, if you're winning, you're running 10, 11 times a day. Yeah. I made eight runs in three days last weekend. Sometimes four day nationals. I It's eight runs in four or five days, you know, whatever the number. I mean, um, so it's, it's very, very, very different, but then the results of the competition are different, right? Because it's so much harder to make great runs. So spread out. When you look at it just by the numbers, you think like the NHRA side is much easier. Where when you look at bracket racing, the numbers are way tighter. Reaction times are better. Cars are going dead on. Packages are better. But you're racing back to back to back, and it's easier to get in a rhythm. So it's easier to make good runs. Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. And I guess on the on the opposite side of that point, does it then become does it then become even that much more difficult to win rounds? Because because every you know everybody quote unquote, but those racers that are going deep into the rounds are seeing the tree more and more frequently and in this tighter tuning window and, and setup window. So does thereby, does it now become more difficult to actually win those rounds when they are coming so kind of fast and tight with each other? You know, I, I don't know how to honestly answer that. Like, yeah. obviously my thing is NHRA. I haven't um, had the success that I'd like to on the bracket racing stage. Um, you know, I mean, I've got a lot of rounds. I've made some money here and there, but I, I'm not a guy that's won you know, 10, 20 grand trust sure. events, right? Bracket races. So to speak on that is like kind of difficult. Yeah, I got you. For me, personally, I feel like it's it's easier for me to make consistently good runs in a bracket yeah. stage because I'm running closer together. Does that make the competition also make better runs easier? Yes. But, but I don't know. Like, I, I almost feel like it counters it, right? Like, I feel like, it's harder to make good runs so that everybody's making mediocre runs, but it's still, it, I feel like it's just as hard to win regardless. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you know, I, it's just very different, but I'm also the guy that hasn't won a bunch on the bracket side. I haven't done it a bunch. You know, I mean, I, on the West coast where we're at, I get a spring fling and a, and a couple other races every year. That's it. Like yeah. I don't, I don't get to do this every weekend. So I, I don't know, you know, like watching it, um, watching it from a distance and watching friends and competitors like, you know, like Peter who puts on the fling is one of my very good friends. And to be honest with you, he has just as good of a chance of winning when he shows up to a bracket race as he does a national event. <laughs> right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. No, he's like the best to ever do it arguably, but like, that's just the fact like Dan Fletcher, like he <laughs> left yep. a racetrack, I think in Galat with 50 or 60 grand in his pocket or something a couple of years ago, but he's also won a hundred national events. Like, I think that if you're a good racer, you can you have the ability to excel at either one. Yeah, the talent um, the talent finds its the talent finds a way correct. to make to make you kind of match what the task is at hand. And we, and you know one of the elements I want to go back towards the stock and super stock conversation is you know there is no such thing as a as a heads up race at a bracket race, right? But when we get into stock and right. super stock racing, there is this there is this dual element of needing to be a very consistent driver, uh, either like you said with your foot or with your hand on the trans brake button, but also needing to have a race car that's capable of, of having to thump somebody if you need it. And how much of that element attracts you to this style of racing as well, the heads-up stuff, when it happens? It, it 
it does a lot. I mean, it's very fun. Um, and, and that's what I, I guess the big picture, like NHRA stuff, I feel like is more technical from start to finish yeah. where a bracket racing, you throw a dial in on, you make good runs, right? On the NHRA side, we're getting there. And I mean, before you're even getting there, you're looking at the entry list to see who's going to be in your class, who you have the potential of racing heads up. Now, do you need to move a class because maybe you can't beat them or whatever? Then you got qualifying and you're trying to manipulate the ladder to, to make sure you're in a good spot to avoid heads ups or to get heads ups. Some people go for heads ups if they have a fast car. Um, you know, so, so you're worried about the entry list, you're worried about qualifying, then you get through qualifying and you're racing and all of a sudden third round, you need to drain your oil and <laughs> put zero weight in and ice it and take 200 pounds out and, and do all this stuff to run a heads up and then you win the heads up and now you got to put it all back and hope you did everything exactly the way it was before to go back and dial in again. You know, it, it, it's just this, there's so much involved on the NHRA side, but the packages are, are not as aggressive. So it, it's just very, very, very different where like maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I got a bracket race, you get a time run, you put a dial in on and you just hit get the tree it. and keep making runs all day. You know, there, yeah. there's none of that. I mean, you could pull in the lanes wrong against, you know, <laughs> I mean, right. there's no ladder. There's no, yeah. it's, it's much simpler. Yeah, no, and, and conceptually that's, and I agree with you. That's a, and that's a, that's a really neat way to look at it that I hadn't, I hadn't actually considered. Um, maybe a weird question, but have you ever been in a situation where you've had the stalker and the super stalker both in a heads up in the same round? I have not. No. Cause that, that sounds like it would be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I could do it, uh, but no, I haven't. Uh, fortunately, you know, historically, the Superstalker I've raced, I've ran a modified by Cobalt and modified. Yep. And, uh, there's not a lot of heads-ups in modified, so um, most of the heads-up I've ever had has been in Stock Eliminator. Um, you know, fast forward, now I'm running the other Copo in Superstock. I didn't this past week in Vegas, but I, I am all year. And there is a bigger potential of heads-ups with that car. Um, I just haven't had one yet you know it's only been a year of running it and i've had a heads up but not one that i couldn't just handle i haven't had one that i really had to get up for and, and make wholesale changes to the car when we talk about and it's fun to talk to sportsman racers especially the guys that have been the girls that have been multi-time champions because of the we've talked about the strategic nature of preparing your car for round around competition but the strategic nature of picking races of of monitoring what's going on around the country with everybody else in every other division, um, it goes it goes so far beyond what what the I guess the the common fan understands about winning a sportsman championship at NHRA. You really have to be ultra vigilant of so many different elements that most other racers don't have to consider. Yeah, you you really do because um, yeah, there is there's so much going. You're racing with people you know, in competing for championships with people that you may never, ever race against, right? Compared to the pros, like Antron Brown races Steve Torrance every week or whatever, <laughs> right? right? He's going like, to see, see him next week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Correct. And there's times when, like, I've raced for championships and never even been at the same track as as who maybe finished second, third, or fourth, right? Or whatever the, the case. Like, so it's, it's very, very different in that regard. And it's very difficult as a sports racer to get to the races, depending on where you live, you know, um, you know, I talked to, you know, friends back East, you know, like Fletcher, he's telling me the other day, he's got like 47 tracks within a half hour. I like obviously exaggerated, <laughs> right. but it's ridiculous where me, like, I think the last championship I won, I needed two more divisionals. I had to drive from Vegas to Woodburn, Oregon, from Oof. Woodburn, Oregon to great Bend, Kansas. I mean, it was wow. like, yeah, it was like four 
4,500 miles to get two division races in, you know, just trying to yeah. get two races. Like it's just very difficult. And so, you know, just that, just being able to get there, have a real job, have kids, a family, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not easy. Um, but you know, that, that being said, it's not easy for the pros either. You know, I mean, they got to go to however many races they're at a racetrack every weekend where, yeah, but typically, not, but typically, know? yeah, and but I, I'd, I'd argue, I'd, I'd only counter argue to say that they're not driving their own trucks there. <laughs> you know, yeah, what I they mean? definitely, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Like the sportsman racer, on average, is is probably not the most glamorous thing. You know, you're whatever. Like for me, I'm often leaving after work, driving all night, getting somewhere, racing all weekend, got to get home for work, and somewhere between home and there, you got to dump the crapper in the motor home and fill it up with diesel fuel. And it's not the most glamorous thing in the world. I promise you <laughs> that's almost the advantage of winning in Vegas. Like my dad and I were talking about this the other day. He's like, man, it's so nice to, to finish a race and just have to drive a half hour home. Exactly. Where like, there's often time. And I remember one time I had a meeting. I won the Denver national event, which is like 750 miles from home and literally got in the motor as quick as I could load and drove straight home, got home at like, six or seven the next morning and was at work at eight, you know, I mean, oh it, it's, just, it's not the most, it's definitely it, at times it's not the most fun, but we all do it. We all love it. You know, obviously, uh, the competition and, and so on and, and the friendships and it, it's obviously a great sport and we wouldn't change it, but it definitely can be, uh, it can be difficult at times. So what is your kind of uh, plan for the rest of the year? Or does that plan become fluid depending on where you are in the points or where other people are in the points? Do you have to really make those decisions? Not necessarily on the fly, but do you have to have everything laid out now? Or is this something that can be changed uh, as time goes on? It's definitely something that can be changed. Um, at this point, to say that I don't care is probably not right. But I'm just not interested in racing for points at this yeah. At this time of my sense. life, I guess, like my kids are getting older, we're doing other things, they're playing sports and blah, blah, blah. But if all of a sudden I ended up with a couple more final rounds and, and had a good shot of winning a championship, obviously I'd, I'd do whatever it takes to get enough races to try to make it happen, you know, or, or to give it a shot. Um, you know, my plan at this point, you know, we have a double divisional coming up in Vegas and then we have the spring playing and after that, I actually have a few months off. Like, I don't think we race again until like the Sonoma national. And, uh, so that, that's it. I mean, I, I don't have, um, you know, like Indy, I haven't decided if I'm going to Indy or not. Um, it's, I, I'll decide later in the year, you know, if I have enough time at work, if I'm not too busy and I can get there, maybe I will, but I, I don't really have plans of being there, you know? So, um, it's kind of fluid. I'll see how points are. I'll see how others are doing, how I'm doing. I mean, I almost don't even care what others are doing. It's it's about if I'm doing it. Yeah. If I end up where, you know, I've got a 70, 75-point average at the end of this double divisional or something, then I'm probably going to make sure I can get to six nationals and eight divisional. I'll get to six nationals no matter what, but I'll make sure I get to eight divisionals. If I have a, if, you know, if I have a bad weekend and, I mean, one win is not going to cause me to go find eight divisionals, I'll tell you that. Like, it takes so much more to win a championship <laughs> that it, i I got to really, like, I got to really do good to want to spend that much time on the road and away from home. No, I mean, it's, it's makes sense. And it's, like I said, it's always a fascinating conversation for me to kind of, to understand the mentality of, of, of a guy that like you, that's, that's won five championships and, and that approach and, and kind of how you kind of uh, have the philosophy to, to do what you do. Justin, I appreciate you taking the time and congratulations on the, uh, the win in Vegas. It's a pleasure to talk to you today and uh, I look forward to seeing you down the road, I guess, probably in Sonoma. Yeah, for sure at Sonoma, and uh, I appreciate you having me. I, I, I appreciate you guys uh, 
including sportsman racers on your show. It's, it's, it's really cool for us. So thank you very much. You bet, man. Thank you. And that will bring us to the end of another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. How great to talk to David Grubnick. How great to talk to Justin Lamb. You, you, you really, it always blows me away when we get to talk to sportsman racers who function at the level of, of, of Justin and, and guys and girls of his ilk. Um, they approach this sport with such an, an interesting manner, with such an analytical gaze that uh, we don't give them enough credit for it. And every time I talk to one of the racers like him, uh, it just blows me away, and we know that we know the crew chiefs are approaching this for a very analytical way as well. And I guess that's why it makes sense to have both of these guys on the same show. They're analyzing different things in different ways, and and they're doing it successfully. And so, there you have it. I think uh, we got both ends of the sport. You get a top fuel crew chief, and you have a just an absolute all star, world class, uh, five time world champion stock and super stock racer. It does not get much cooler than that when it comes to the world of NHRA Camping World and Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series action. We'll be back next week with another episode of the NHRA Insider as we wade through the waters of our couple-of-week break here before we go down to Houston, Texas for the NHRA Spring Nationals. Make sure you jump on NHRA.com to grab your tickets for either Houston, which they're going like hotcakes, the four wide in Charlotte, always a banging crowd. Our return to Virginia after three-year absence is going to be huge. And, of course, Epping, New Hampshire is going to be awesome. My home track up there in the Granite State will be spectacular. All those tickets available on NHRA.com. Back to Bristol on Father's Day. All the good stuff gets ready to crank up once we get going here in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another NHRA Insider. I'm Brian Loans.